Welcome back to the What's Your One More podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by one of my co-hosts, Mr. Daniel Halverson, as we address our March lending update. Daniel, thank you for being on the show as always. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, man, it's great to have you here. And, you know, and today's lending update, uh, it comes with a lot of, uh, you know, I- I'm going to say it's it's honestly some um, kind of not favorable news in some aspects and some favorable news in some aspects. And, uh, you know, it's uh, you can take the good with the bad in the lending world today. And, and this is kind of what we're going to talk about. Things happen, right? Uh, we've had some recent news where we've had, you know, conventional loan limits increased, FHA loan limits increased, obviously VA loans increased. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of been really good news in, in the sense of, hey, man, things are kind of transitioning the right way. And then we get some uh, some kind of curveballs thrown at us here that take effect this month that are going to impact buyers any way you look at it. It's going to impact people that are looking to refinance any way you look at it. And that on the hills of what we're battling currently in the interest rate market as we wait on this roller coaster to kind of make that downward trend, that momentum we keep talking about, um, it could it could present some issues and affordability issues for some people as well. So let's start off with the good news because I always like that better. It's always great to lead with that. So let's start with some of the great news out of the FHA camp as well as uh, the HUD camp in general as far as some of the updates they made. Well, yeah, I'm a firm believer that you start with the good news and then just bury the bad news down at the end somewhere. <laughs> see, see if people make it that far. Address and deflect. That's right. right. Okay. But uh, you know, essentially, uh, on FHA loans, uh, the the mortgage insurance is paid monthly. It's actually calculated annually, but it's paid as monthly as part of the monthly payment. Uh, it's it's decreasing pretty much effective immediately by 30 basis points. So let's just set the stage for for the audience. You know, with FHA loan, you know, if you're buying an FHA loan, you're going to have what they call a monthly insurance premium. Some people call it the same thing as PMI. Essentially, the, the tool itself operates the same way, has a different name. So with FHA, you pay a funding fee that's included in your closing cost up front to HUD. And then you turn around, you have a monthly insurance fee that goes with it as well. Correct. And what we're yep. talking about right now is that monthly insurance fee, which you know really, no matter what your credit score is, is the same number every single time, except on the conventional side, the PMI is dictated by your credit score. On the FHA side, it's, it's come one, come all. Based on loan to value, this is what it's going to be. And this is the term that you're going to have it for. It's all preset, no matter what your credit score is. It's all just based on how much down payment you put down with FHA, correct? That is correct. Okay. Yes. So what we're talking about right now is this number has drastically gone backwards, which is good news. 100%. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the affordability impacts of that. Well, I think it's been seven or eight years since FHA made any changes to their their mortgage insurance premiums. Yeah, and some time. At that time, they, they actually um, had come down as well. Uh, but basically, come down again by thirty basis points, and and that's it's paid monthly as part of the the borrower's monthly payment. But you know, just an example to kind of illustrate what that means. You know, if you take a three hundred thousand dollar loan, a thirty basis point reduction in the monthly mortgage insurance equates to about seventy five dollars per month or nine hundred dollars per year mm-hmm. uh, less that that particular customer will pay in mortgage insurance. And you know, basically, to take it a step further than that, that's on that loan amount, that's basically the equivalent of a three-eighths of a percent reduction in interest rate. Wow. So, you know, as we're we're dealing with kind of the ebb and flow of mortgage rates, and, you know, you know unfortunately, month of February was not very kind of mortgage rates, which we'll talk a little bit about, but we are getting some positive news here that significantly improves affordability, where even though we saw interest rates go up, you know, from a monthly payment standpoint, uh, a lot of that is is offset on the FHA side with mm-hmm. this news here. So, um, you know, it's really, it's a, it's a big deal so, so much that HUD estimates that, you know, approximately 850,000 homeowners will benefit from those changes just like this those year numbers. alone. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about FHA. So for our audience, you know, this is a big deal. And I would say about 35% of loans in America are FHA loans, uh, about 
you know, really 43% of all loans in America are govy loans at this point. And that, those numbers aren't consistent. They change as rates go and they ebb and flow. I mean, obviously in 2020, it was more of like an 80-20, you know, more conventionals than there were government loans. But the reason this happens, just to kind of point out, I think this is important, talk about why it happens. So those, those, that money that we're talking about, that monthly premium and that upfront premium, that is all paid directly to HUD. So the HUD gets the housing and urban development. So they hold on to that money. And then what happens is as the default rates, and we did a whole episode on PMI um, and default rates and why you pay into this pool of insurance, unlike conventional loans, government loans, once that premium is overfilled, they have to start essentially either using the money or 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 basically buying down and, and rewarding future revenues coming in in the form of PMI, which is what they're doing right here. They're actually reducing this. And to your point, eight years ago, they did this. They also did it again in 2000. Well, they did it earlier in 2009. And it's because they have too much money in the premium pool, meaning the default rates. This is, this is further evidence when you hear about foreclosure waves and things that are happening. This is further evidence to support the government's forecast and the government's current rate of foreclosures is not high. Because they're not using this money. We all know that MIP and the PMI is used in foreclosure pools to support and offset uh, the investors that buy into that. It's, it's, it's not actually happening. So they're actually having to reduce the premiums. Yeah, exactly correct. I mean, what you, what you said is pretty spot on. I mean, as delinquencies go down, generally speaking, affordability is, is improved you know, from, from the HUD side, FHA. Yeah. Um, so you know, you've got a market where delinquencies have been lower uh, leading up to this. And, and as they continue to get more and more profitable, they pass that cost, you know, they pass that savings along rather to the consumer. So this is really just a sign of, of you know, lower delinquencies, mm-hmm. HUD being healthy, having, you know, money in reserve. And then we see that call, that that savings be passed along to the consumer here. So Now, do you think this is a temporary savings or do you think this is more of a long-term permanent savings? Well, I mean, it, you know, I guess leading in from what I just said, it was, I think 2015 was the last time they made a mm-hmm. change to this. Yeah. So uh, I don't think that there's a, they're certainly going to make changes in the future. Sure. But it's been eight years since they made a change. It was six years before that. I believe that they made a change. I'd have to, you know, go go back and look at that. It's not something they, that they change frequently. Yeah, so. that, that was my point. It's, it's kind of, it's here for a little <clears throat> bit. And consistency, anything longer than three years in the mortgage industry is a lifetime, right? Absolutely. So, so it looks like it, this could be here history pending for a little while to come. And that's good news for our buyers. Absolutely. Yeah. Without a doubt. So let's talk about the other side of HUD. There's always, well, there's really three sides. You know, you got FHA, USDA, and they kind of fall into that same uh, bucket there. Um, you know, they're totally different products, but then there's the VA side of HUD. And so VA also made some changes. They announced a little earlier than FHA. So tell us about those for all of our veterans and, uh, and uh, you know, retirees that are looking to take advantage of the VA loans. Yeah, so essentially similar to FHA, they call it an upfront mortgage insurance premium Mm -hmm. on FHA loans, but VA, they have a similar fee. It's called a funding fee. Mm -hmm. And um, essentially based on first time use or subsequent use, that funding fee is a certain percentage. And effective April 7th, um, basically the Department of Veteran Affairs has lowered that funding fee anywhere from 15 to 30 basis points, depending on if it's first time use versus subsequent use. And uh, the way that benefits the borrower is that that funding fee is rolled into their mortgage, generally right. speaking. Very, very select cases will someone want to pay that up front. But generally, it's rolled into the loan. So it's not going to be anywhere near the same benefits to affordability of, of, of what FHA announced. But um, but essentially, you know, you're talking 15 to 30 basis points, um, which, you know, 
could be five, six, seven hundred bucks and could be well, well over that depending on loan amount. So mm-hmm. it's just another opportunity uh, where we're seeing some savings be passed along to the consumers here, uh, which is welcome news um, before we kind of get into our, our next topic here at the very end as, as far as interest rates are concerned. So, um, and those charts, if you know, if you go uh, look at the actual lending update, that chart is updated there with the correct funding fees. So uh, all that information is there based on Basically, first-time use, subsequent use, and yeah. then down payment amount will also impact what those funding fees are. But they went down across the board, um, you know, regardless of first-time use, subsequent use, or, you know, LTVs. So, uh, so great news, once again. Yeah, and this is not a rather complicated chart that Daniel's referring to. There's a lot involved, though. So, what we're going to do is we're going to put this in our show notes. There'll be a link in there where you can get to this lending update. There's about two and a half pages of these charts you're referring to. And again, you don't have to be a loan expert to understand this. This is pretty simplified. I'm looking at it right now. You guys did a great job with it. So, if you're a buyer, prospective buyer, or even an agent wants to know about these new funding fees, they're all going to be right here located in the show notes and on our YouTube channel as well. Click on those. You can find that uh, two pages worth of charts that you eloquently put together for us, Daniel. So, thanks for doing that. But while you're taking a look at it. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, we talk the digital world that we live in right now. There used to be a time when, you know, you would ask someone to apply online or much less do a, a disclosure package online. And they would say, I don't know, I don't feel comfortable putting my social security number online. I want to tell it to you over the phone. And, you know, fast forward right to COVID. Now people don't even want to come in anymore. They would rather do it online. And, uh, you know, and, and in the the, the, the spirit of that, you're starting to see the agencies, and when I say agencies, I mean Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, HUD, they're all starting to move towards that digital progressive closing as well. We're not fully digital. There's a hybrid that you're getting ready to talk about. But man, this is kind of a nice concept that we're seeing really, uh, it's been out for a little bit, but we're starting to see some adaptiveness to it. That's the thing about the mortgage business. There's always like a product that's front-led and and it's not adapted by everybody. There's like one front runner and everybody wants to see what that front runner does. And they're like, ah, is this going to work out? I don't know. Let them pave the way. We'll see how this goes. This, this product probably came out close to two years ago, but there wasn't a lot of adaptiveness to it. Now we're seeing it widely adapted, which I think has a lot of benefits to it. And so what I'm talking about is a digital closing versus going to your title company and doing a traditional closing. So I think you refer to this as a hybrid. You kind of want to explain that a little bit to our audience and what that means. Yeah, and I think in general, you know, the the push for technology, obviously that that goes across a lot of different industries. But uh, in the in the mortgage world, I think that that push towards digital really started with the front end loan origination Agreed. side of things. Yeah, completely. And trying to streamline that from a technology standpoint to where it was more efficient, um, faster. You know, and that doesn't always happen exactly as as uh, you know the, the the technology folks would hope. But we're starting to see a much wider adoption of of digital closings. And essentially, all that means is instead of going to you know typical title company physically signing every single piece of paper, uh, at this stage in the game, we can offer a hybrid closing where really anything that doesn't require a notarized signature can be digitally signed before closing. Now, that's pretty impressive when you think about it, because most of the documents at closing do not require a notary, right? They don't require that. You're talking talking 80%? I would say at least 80% of the documents. So, you know, and the big win there for, for buyers or if you're doing a refinance transaction, mm-hmm. the, the big win there is instead of spending an hour at the title company, you could presumably spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the title company. So um, so does that mean the borrower is doing the heavy lifting prior to coming to closing? No, not necessarily. I mean, a lot of what is being signed are mostly, I say mostly, some of the administrative documents mm-hmm. that 
Um, I would say that most buyers probably are not super interested in reading and understanding. Not to say that, you know, you get a digital copy of everything once you sign it. So not not to say that you can't read those things, that you can't ask questions. Or right. That. But you're getting documents that's like, oh, hey, you got an appraisal. I need you to acknowledge you got no. an appraisal. It's like, yeah, I've signed that four times. I know I got the appraisal. Oh, hey, there's a privacy notice. We're not going to share your information. This is the eighth time I've signed this probably already. I mean, maybe not really eight, but you know what I mean? Like I've yep. signed a pri- I know what a privacy policy is, right? But you still have to sign. It's like, oh, initial all bottom pages. So it's nice to have this ability to kind of wipe this out before you get there, right? To really kind of speed up that closing and maximize your time there. Yeah. I mean, I think ab- absolutely. And then the notarized signatures are, are, are the documents requiring notarized signatures are, are more so the ones that are more uh, impactful that, you know, somebody wants to make sure they understand. But hopefully by the time you're getting to the closing table, somebody really has a firm understanding of the type of loan they're getting, what their terms are going to look like. Right. You, know, you, would, you, would, you would like to think in most cases that somebody's not heavily reviewing the final disclosure to make sure they understand their loan terms. Yeah. Um, so it's a great thing. You know, we're, we're working towards a fully digital closing uh, later this year, at least, you know, Bank of England, I can say that. Uh, and digital closings have been around for a while. I think that, you know, this isn't, like you said, I mean, this is at least a couple of years that this has been available, but, you know, you've gotten, uh, you've got some some early adopters, but really a lot of investors that are buying uh, mortgage-backed securities, you know, they're buying buying loans after closing. Yeah. Um, you know, they've been reluctant to uh, accept these just because it's kind of one of those fear of the unknown things where uh, if 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 everyone is not adopting it, then nobody nobody wants to adopt it. So we're st- you're seeing more investors comfortable with this. Uh, you know, the agencies are more comfortable with this. Yeah, and there's some early things that had to come out of this that we've already seen have been corrected. But one of the early things was let's let's say you have uh, spouses on a loan, right? Here was one of the major concerns: I have to send this to two different email addresses because I have to verify that in this case you and your spouse both signed this. Well, there was a fear that what if one spouse logged into another person's email? It's not uncommon to think you have access to that, and they signed the docs on their behalf. And then we go close, and then all of a sudden, the verification, you know, wasn't significant enough, or they bypassed it. They close, and uh, there's a default on the loan. And one spouse goes, I never I never signed on that loan. So that's that early adaptiveness where you're like, ah, I kind of want to see how this works out. What measures, what kind of two-factor authentication do they have in place? Um, I'm pretty sure when they come to the title company, as in, in this scenario, as a tandem, they both acknowledge they did the digital signings, so there's no questions there. But early on, these were kind of like, almost like you're discovering how to do it for the first time. So I could kind of see the the resistance that the industry may have had on that. But to your point, you know, it's a state-by-state closing too, because there's some states that aren't going to allow for these full digital closings because the state's not prepared for it. I mean, we do have the mortgage electronic recording system with MERS, which has kind of been around for years. I want to say close to 18 years, but it has accelerated this process and helped it become more digital on the back end. Um, But from a borrower's perspective, you know, why is this important? There's a theology this can cut closing costs for you from a title company's perspective because you're reducing the amount of time the title company has to put into that closing. There's also a theology that, quite frankly, is probably going to eliminate some unnecessary positions when you're all going on a digital closing versus a more paper-driven closing. And then finally, this is called an e-note. So an e-note is real important because when you go to securitize a loan prior to digital closings, you literally had to take that physical paper that the borrower signed in the form of a note, send that to an intermediary or straight to the agency or the investor. They had to review it and then buy the paper. When you hear people say they buy the paper, that's actually what they're doing. They're buying the note. So they're owning that note. But in this case, it's a digital send. 
So all I just described is gone. It's a digital sin and it's instantaneous from the title company right back to the bank to the investor. So it all happens in hours instead of days and weeks. And that speeds up the funding process and also speeds up the liquidity process of the industry. So this has a lot of benefits to both buyer and also lender slash investor that we should probably see facilitate through the really the ranks of the mortgage industry over the next three years. Yeah, as they work through the kinks, I think it's it's really going to be a, a very positive thing for the mortgage industry. Yeah. And just like most technologically driven, you know, things I think that the goal is is cost. Can you reduce cost? Sure. Can you save time? Can you increase efficiency? So um, it's a great thing for borrowers. You know, less time spent at closing is is always a good thing because we want the yeah, as a mortgage lender, we want the closing experience to be very positive. It's the last thing that people remember. So if you can cut down on the time that they spend at closing uh, signing paperwork, you can really hopefully give them a, a more satisfactory closing process and increase the likelihood that, you know, they have a positive experience. Yeah. And, you know, the one thing I know about you is you love technology. <laughs> to, to an extent. <laughs> to an extent. At a very base level. Yeah. So uh, for you to bring this up, it must be pretty exciting and be worthwhile because <laughs> if I know one thing about you, it's that how much you love technology. Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. And I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com, www.boemortgage.com, because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. Let's jump into our final aspect of the lending update. And man, do we, I feel like, you know, again, at this point, we're all inflation experts. At this point, we're all Federal Reserve experts. At this point, we're all rate experts. But our last one was not another rate update, but here we are. It's uh, it's a little humorous now because it's like, hey, man, I thought you said rates were getting lower and they're coming soon. And I love how you really just kind of address the white elephant in the room here because, you know, we have been kind of on that, that train, if you may. They're coming, they're coming, they're coming. And I'm not saying we're not the boy that cried wolf here because we still believe that's going to happen. But like all things, sometimes progress takes a back step and then you go two, you go one step backwards to go two steps forwards. That's what happened here in February. And I'll let you kind of break it down. But uh, you said earlier in the very beginning of this episode, we didn't get some favorable news in February. Uh, we're going to explain why that news was unfavorable and why we think it's temporary, very, very temporary. But nonetheless, we can't overlook the fact that things probably didn't go our way in January. Yeah, without a doubt. I think that... Um you know, a couple things really led to interest rates going up. The first mm -hmm. one was jobs report came out much better than expected, and uh, a little that a little bit of that is smoke and mirrors. And, and listen, I'm I don't claim to be the smartest guy in the room, but let's talk about that. But it seems to me that uh, the jobs report that we got that was so favorable was all based on uh, seasonal adjustments, meaning that these jobs weren't actually created; they're just seasonally adjusting the numbers. Mm -hmm. Uh, and once again, you know, I'm sure that some of that has a purpose. I don't claim to be an expert in, on how those reports are made, but it would seem to me that the jobs report would simply measure the amount of jobs that were created, uh, which is not necessarily the case of what happens here. 
Well, can I interject a little bit here? We did a whole episode breaking down um, basically the state of the economy, and we talked a little bit in that episode about this job report and about this uh, theology that so many jobs are being created. The seasonal adjustment aspect uh, is a moving target, right? And so you're seasonally adjusting. Now, when we're doing job reports, we're looking in the rearview mirror for future, for basically for future predictions. That's a, that's a bold way of driving a car if you think about it. You can't drive it through the rearview mirror, but that's what's happening with some of these uh, reports such as this one. So seasonal adjustment is the holiday adjustment, right? Well, what do what more what kind of jobs are more affluent during the holiday than the rest of the season? It's part-time, right? So we had part-time jobs in there. The whole idea of part-time is that either A, they're temporary, which most of those were, so that means they're going to be removed, and B, they're part-time, so they're not full-time, which means they're probably working another job, right? So the reality is this job creation is kind of transposed of Three different metrics. One, that first one I just described on there, seasonal holiday adjustments. Two, part-time, which means you're full-time somewhere else. And why are you part-time? Because of inflation, cost of living, cost of food, cost of shelter, cost of everything, energy. You can't afford to live at your normal rate, so you'll get a part-time job. And then the third one are all the people that are filing for new businesses. And that is probably the most biggest variable in this mark we can't uh, equate for. And that's, hey, listen, Charlie, my producer, right, sitting over here right now, says, hey, listen, I'm uh, I'm a producer for What's Your One More, but I'm 1099. Charlie could open up a business right now titled Charlie Walker Producer LLC, and that's a new job created, but Charlie's a producer for Charlie. Charlie may not employ Daniel and Quentin in this case. Charlie employs Charlie, but that counts as a new job, and it counts as new job creations, like and meaning he could create more jobs. He could, but the, the reality is that's that's what's going on with the gig economy right now. People are working from home. They're 1099. They're filing for new businesses, and they're employing themselves, right? And so the the downside of that is you talk about these new jobs, but it's hard to keep up with those when they go, um, when, when maybe they, they're, they're not creating anymore, meaning that if you're a 1099 contract and you run out of contracts, you're not technically firing anybody and you're not technically laying anybody off. What are you going to do? Lay yourself off? So the reality is you're not really accounting for the job creation and the job loss at the same time, which is, I'm not saying manipulating the reports. That's not what we're saying, but it's definitely smoke and mirrors in the reports. And I kind of want to go into that real briefly as we talk about why that job metric was showing the way it did and why we also think it's going to not correct itself, but the seasonality adjustment is going to go away. Correct. Yeah. So, so essentially, you know, Job report was not favorable. We anticipate that. Uh, actually, you know, as we're recording tomorrow, uh, job report, ADP job report gets released. And then Friday, I believe, the Bureau of Labor Statistics yep, BLS. releases their uh, theirs as well. So, you know, we're anticipating uh, more favorable. When we say more favorable, unfortunately, that means less job creations. Um, but more favorable jobs report, uh, in this case, uh, for interest rates, because it's going to signify that the feds are, are are succeeding in trying to slow the economy, uh, which hopefully means less inflation, which means improvement for mortgage rates. So we're hopeful that we get good, good information there. Um, and then, you know, basically what happened in, in February with respect to inflation, you know, we got a reading that met expectations on CPI, came in at 0.5%, which met the expectation that we, uh, the, 0.5 is ultimately what was expected. The year-to-year went down, uh, but it but it went from six and a half to six point four percent instead of what was being projected at six point two percent. If you look at the core CPI, it increased by 0.4 percent in January, which I believe was right in line with expectations. And although core CPI went down from five point seven to five point six percent, 
once again, it was still higher than what the market was projecting. So the inflation data, you know, I won't say it was incredibly unfavorable, but it wasn't what was expected. It was a little bit worse than what was expected. And that coupled with the jobs report sent this shock through the markets of, hey, the feds maybe are going to have to continue there to be aggressive. Yep. Maybe maybe what they're trying to accomplish is not happening at the speed that we were hoping that it would happen at. So you've got a lot of, of concern in the market right now when you combine, hey, tons more jobs, unemployment's going mm-hmm. down, and uh, inflation's not going down at the clip that we want it to. Okay, well, maybe we got some bigger concerns here, and, and really what happens anytime there's an inflation concern, that gets priced into interest rates. So we saw you know, a pretty considerable move to the negative in interest mm-hmm. rates that really started with that job report and really kind of carried through the remaining, you know, the remainder of the month of February. So to add some levity to that, we know that markets like certainty. They don't like uncertainty. So when uncertainty happens, we don't see favorable adjustments. We actually, when markets overreact, it's big. That's why it's called an overreaction. And they always overreact to the favor of the market, never the, not the favor of the consumer. So we had some uncertainty with the job reports. Coupled with the uncertainty of the CPI report, it was a double whammy, right? And that's that momentum that you're talking about that didn't kind of go in our favor here. But, you know, as, as we go through this, you know, this the CPI, we did a whole podcast on that as well. One of the things I noticed in there when you just said was, the investors were pricing in in fear that the Federal Reserve's maybe uh, current strategy isn't working and that they're going to have to increase it. Well, we know that it takes about 90 days for whatever Fed hike that happens to work its way through the system at minimum 90. Some argue it's 120. Some argue it's up to 180. But at 90 days at minimum. If we go back 90 days, what happened? Well, we're starting to kind of backpedal the 75 basis points and we started going downward with it, right? Down to 50. So, what happens is there's a theology in the investor world that, oh, crap, they may go back to 75. They may. They may go back to that, and that's not what they want. They want another quarter hike or maybe at best a 50 basis point hike. They do not want a 75 basis point hike. That would be that, – that would, that would definitely shock Wall Street. And so there's this concern, though, that if the 50 didn't work, well, that 25 definitely ain't going to work that they did. And as that shows up in the system, that's concerning. So there's this theology that, crap, here's the uncertainty. They, the Fed may jump in and, and overswing that pendulum right back again. And it'll be interesting to see. In two weeks, we'll get the Fed's notes. We'll get the Fed's open market committee, and we'll find out what they'll do. And you can bet we'll do a podcast on that. I mean, I think that uh, all bets are off, but it'll be really interesting to see what they do. But if they increase it higher than, than 25 basis points, you know, I think the market's pricing in 50 right now. I think that's what you're seeing. I think the investors are pricing in a 50 preparing for that. And so I don't think we'll see too much of a great shift if 50 happens. But if it's above that, that could that could lead to something. Well, I think the good news, too, is that the Feds meet after the inflation data comes out. Yes. Uh, which is a big win. But, you know, in terms of our, our, our outlook on interest rates, you know, we don't – we haven't changed our stance that we think that interest rates are going to go down. I want to be clear about that. And, and the reason we're saying that – Abundantly clear. You know, a, a number of reasons. But the biggest thing is – so if you look at the core the core CPI, so we're taking out food and energy costs, that is the Fed's preferred uh, CPI reading here because food and energy costs are more difficult to um, have an influence over. Those can be – That's correct. They're influenced. the most volatile. They can't control those. Correct. So so if you look at 43% of core CPI is shelter costs. And shelter costs were up 0.7% for the month of January. 
and up 8% for the year. For the audience, we just take a brief moment to explain shelter calls. If this is a first-time listener, just explain shelter calls right out the gate. I know we've done it numerous times, but just take a minute to explain that. Well, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, it's the the cost of housing. So is is it costing more money? Are rents going up year over year? Uh, there's more that goes into it as well. But, you know, in terms of in terms of the the primary thing that they're looking at in the core CPI, it is year over year change in apartment rent listings. Right. There's you got apartment apartment list rentings. That's one of the factors. Yep. And then the other one is the owner's equivalent of rent. Correct. Right. So, you know, so if you look at really July twenty twenty one is when mm-hmm. shelter costs measured by apartment rent listings year over year really started to accelerate. So July started to take off. Uh, January 2022 was the peak of that. It was a little bit over 18%. So mm. meaning year over year, the the price people were paying for rent presumably was about 18% more based on the, the listings for apartment rentals. Okay. After that time, we saw, you know, basically we got to the top of the mountain and then turn around and walk back down. Right. Basically, those shelter costs had been coming down in a straight line like a cliff from then until now where they sit today at basically apartment rental, you know, year over year, the change is about 3.3%. Mm-hmm. So you went from 18% to 3.3%, but the CPI is measured on a, on a 12 month um, time frame. So right. we have to let these higher months filter out in exchange for lower months. Correct. So that's why we still feel confident in that, you know, if 43% of core CPI is shelter and shelter costs are going down, then logic would say that we can expect inflation to continue to come down based on how it's measured. Yeah, and to your point, you know, rental contracts aren't monthly. They're yearly. Correct. So we're, we're measuring, you know, we're not getting new rental contracts every single month to go, oh, here's the trend line. We're having to annualize that trend line. And so sometimes that takes time. And when do most contracts annualize? At the beginning of the year and mid-year. So summertime and January, right? Well, we just got January's information. So we're trying to, and that won't show up until February's reading. So we really won't get a read until this new contract information, to your point, until really this month. It'll be interesting to see how it shows up in shelter costs. Without a doubt, yeah. So you basically just got, in, in February, February's announcement was January's inflation data. So you basically Correct. just got the highest shelter reading <laughs> that you're going to get. The highest. You know, so that that's why we still feel that way, guys. And, you know, nothing happens in a straight line, unfortunately, uh, even with COVID, you know, when interest rates um, interest rates actually spiked pretty considerably mm-hmm. before they came down, yeah, uh, and that was with the Fed intervening and you know buying mortgage backed securities. So, so nothing nothing happens in a straight line, really, in in all walks of life. But yeah. especially when you're talking economic data, economic news that we're relying on when we say that mortgage rates are going to come down. So nothing has changed in our outlook. Would it have been nice if if interest rates didn't go up in February and, and now we have to make up some ground? Absolutely. But we, we still feel strongly that as we move into the spring uh, that we're going to continue to see lower rates. And and I'll leave, you know, I'll leave, I guess, with, with parting thoughts here as it pertains to interest rates. Okay. So I was looking at something the other day Barry Habib had prepared, and he was talking about— you know, We're big Barry fans, by the way. We most certainly are. Yeah. And, and if you're in the real estate or mortgage industry, and you probably not, are too. I have, yeah. I have my doubts about you. <laughs> but, um, you know, he was talking about, you know, basically why now is a good time to buy. 
despite the fact that interest rates just went up a little yeah, bit. I love this. Is this this little U, U shape he drew? Yeah, this and, is perfect. And, and essentially he's talking about timing the bottom of the market, you know, mm -hmm. and, and nobody can time the bottom of the market. But he went all the way back to, you, you actually early 2012 was when home prices hit their lowest. It wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, 08, 09. It was actually 2012 when they hit their lowest. Right. And then they increased considerably. Once they started to accelerate, they went up 8% year over year that first year continued to accelerate. We had actually 121 straight months of home price appreciation. So from that time in 2012 until sometime in mid-2022, we had 121 straight months. 121. Of higher home. That's 10 years for you guys counting up. <laughs> but, you know, basically at a decade of every single month, home prices went up. Wow. And, you know, his point is when you're looking at timing the bottom right now, so nobody's ever going to time the bottom perfectly. But we know that we've gotten, what, five, six straight months of decelerating. You know, now now home prices, you know, maybe have taken a, a step backwards here. In some in some parts of the country, yes. Well, yeah, without and, a doubt. I yeah. think that, and we've talked about, you know, a little bit of, of that with the list to sell price ratios mm -hmm. and some of the other things we've talked about. But, you know, you're, you're looking at an opportunity here where, where you're, you're very close to, and you're never going to know when you hit the bottom of the market until you're on the other side and it starts to accelerate. So you're never going to know when you've hit the bottom. But you're very close to it right now. And you look at, in 2012, before prices started to accelerate, there were 2.2 million homes nationwide available to buy inventory-wise. Mm -hmm. We've got 984,000 right now in this market with more people. And that doesn't even account for the homes that are under contract. So of those 984,000, some of them are under contract, so you can't buy those. Yeah. So we're very close to, if not at the bottom, and... For those of you that are discouraged by interest rates, well, interest rates are going to come down. And what's ultimately going to happen that we continue to talk about that we feel very strongly about, when interest rates come down, home prices are going to continue to, they're going to start to accelerate again. Yeah, the seller's right. going to absorb that affordability. There's not enough inventory. Yep. There's a lot of people that want to buy, and there's a lot of people waiting on interest rates to get back in the game. 100%. So if you're a buyer right now, if you're a, if you're a real estate professional, if you're a mortgage professional, you have to look at this as... This is an opportunity for your customers to get in before prices start to accelerate. And if you can get into a home right now before prices accelerate, potentially refinance that home or use that ability to negotiate right now to, to get a 2-1 buy-down, to get a long-term buy-down, to negotiate a better deal mm -hmm. with the potential upside of being able to refinance as well, you know, this is still the prime opportunity because if we're sitting here in May, June, July and interest rates have come down considerably like we think that they may, you're probably talking multiple offers. You're probably talking no, no real ability to negotiate. You're probably talking maybe in some scenarios paying over list when you've got a home that's in a desirable area yep. that, you know, that's got a lot of competition. So this is your opportunity uh, as a buyer right now because in, in three, four months, this could look completely different and we could be having a completely different conversation. Yeah. And I'm not even privy to the graphs you're looking at and the charts you're looking at, but what we'll do is we'll put those in the show notes as well. So you guys can see, cause I've seen what you're looking at. I just don't know if it's the same thing, but we'll put them in there from, uh, from MBS highway and give credit over there to Barry's team for putting that together. It was wonderful. You know, one of the things that I heard there, and here's a, uh, here's an early sign of demand shift coming back, right? Here's an early sign, multiple offers. And in some markets, we're already seeing multiple offers on the desirable home at today's interest rates. So, you know, if you're listening to this, the trend is already showing up 
currently. People are already understanding that dynamic play because, you know, Daniel and Quentin, we're not the only people saying this right now. There's a lot of very educated, well-positioned individuals that are talking about this, and we're starting to see it show up. You know, I think two weeks ago was the first sign of multiple offers that I had brought to my attention, um, and I was in an audience giving a talk, and I said, how many people are seeing multiple offers? 50% of the agents, they were real estate agents, raised their hand in the room, 50%. That was a big number to start to see that already come back, and that was in the month of February. And I'll leave with this. If you're a mortgage lender or you're a lender in any capacity, broker, mortgage lender, banker, you know, there's two ways to look at this little bump in rates here. And I was talking to someone, I know you and I've had this conversation as well. And they're like, well, you know, it would have been nice to see rates kind of, you know, maintain that downward trend. We bumped back up. I go, yeah, but you know what the great news is? Your pipeline's not going anywhere because you're not getting back solicited on lower rates at this point. And for real estate agents, that's great too, because that means your borrower is going to stay where they're at. They're going to get closed and they don't have to worry about switching gears or switching lenders here at the last second because they got back solicited by someone for a lower rate. So March pipeline should close out very well. And here in the next coming weeks, you might even have an opportunity to lock in a lower rate for future pipelines in April and May. So there is a little bit of a win there. I think sometimes we all get lost on the idea of lower rates, push, push, push. But sometimes the downside of a roller coaster going down is that that current pipeline is always subjective to either wanting to relock, which causes margin compression, or B, you have to switch lenders. And if you're a broker, you'd switch channels. So that is is always a challenge that presents itself as lower rates start to drop on that roller coaster. And we're probably going to experience that between March and June at some capacity. Yeah. I mean, I, like I'll, everything you just said, you nailed it. You know, I think that we, we've talked again and again about this being a great opportunity. I'm really hopeful that the, the conversation we have for the April lending update <laughs> is, is the beginning signs of that. If, you know, if we see some improvement right. in interest rates, we continue to move into the spring months. You know, I really feel strongly that what we're saying right now Although it's maybe hard for a buyer to stomach that that you know rates going from close to six to close to seven signals a good opportunity to buy, you know I, I really feel strongly that if we can find a way to make the numbers work, if we can find a way to negotiate the offer to get the payment in line, mm -hmm. that those people will look back six, eight, ten, twelve months from now and say, "Man, really took advantage of a golden opportunity here." So that's really the big takeaway here. Nothing has changed with our rate outlook just a little bit more opportunity for buyers now than they had a few weeks ago. Yeah, you know, and depending on what philosophy you buy into here, Dan, you know, for the people that are, uh, I hear this from people that are huge Bitcoin followers all the time. The reason Bitcoin is going to take off at some capacity is because it's on the gold standard. And once it hits a certain number of 10, you know, I think it's billion or, or I think it's 10 billion. Once it reaches a certain number, they won't, there's no more tokens that can be produced, therefore driving the demand. Well, take that same theology about housing here. Because you just mentioned there's 948,000 homes available. Once we get past that number, you know, if new build can't keep up with the demand, you're going to be seeing certain housing shortage issues further really excel. And that's when the price of this stuff goes up. And that's when it goes up beyond believable status when you're like, I can't believe the home of the price is this. Well, because there's a shortage and someone's willing to pay that to have that home. And that is what's going to happen regardless of rates. We're either going to settle in at the current rate, we're going to get used to the current standards, or we're going to budget around that. There is a acclimation period that takes place. And once that takes place, look out and heaven help us if those rates come back down and that acclimation period is already there, it's going to be a perfect storm of inventory going away and price points going up. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Dan, thanks for being on the show. As always, you always bring great information. Where can our listeners find more about you and uh, Bank of England? 
You can you can visit our, our website here at boejax.com. Give us a call at 904-992-1000, and uh, we'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Yeah, and if you're not in Jacksonville and you're around the country, Daniel, I think you guys have branches all over the country. You can go to boemortgage.com. That's boemortgage.com. Check it out. There's great advisors all over the United States that can help you with that. I know we've got over 140-plus locations, and uh, guys, you do a fantastic job. So thanks for being on the show and giving us some time this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Got one more shot, I'm gonna make it One more chance, I'm gonna take it I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah